So it's estimated that over 4 million books were published in 2019 alone. So the total number of books ever published, approximately now 150 million. And friends, that's a lot of books. And to put it in perspective, if you were to decide to read a book a week, which is admittedly a, a pretty aggressive pace, right? 52 books a year. Think of books like Victor Hugo's Les Mis, you know, 1,400 pages, a lot of reading, a lot of books. But if you were to try to manage that, do one book a week, it would take you just shy of three million years to read all the books ever been published. You know, many of us are familiar with J.K. Rowling, and uh, the, you know, she's the author of the famous Harry Potter series, and her rags-to-riches story of a, of a woman who is sadly an abused wife who had escaped her husband with her daughter, occasionally living in a car so she could finish that first book. Well, that story of hers, it captivates us. But realize the, the reality is less than 1% of books published each year actually reach a Barnes & Noble bookstore. Most published books gain little to zero attention, let alone ever grace the New York Times bestseller list. In fact, you are 10 times more likely to get struck by lightning than to land on the New York Times bestseller list. Now, I don't mean to depress all of you would-be authors out there this morning with that stat. Right? I got that from the National Weather Service. Go figure. But listen to that again. Ten times more likely to be struck by lightning during your lifetime than to land on the New York Times bestseller list. And friends, that's why the Bible is a fascinating book. Because no other book is more quoted in literature than the Bible. No other book has more shaped the English language than the Bible. No other book has more defined our own legal and political systems than the Bible. And no other book has come close to outselling the Bible, not even the Harry Potter series. Even in today's increasingly post-Christian culture, it's estimated that more than 25 million Bibles are still per purchased each year in the U.S. alone. So friends, what is so special about the Bible? Why should anyone care about the Bible? Friend, why should you care about the Bible? Well, that brings us to our message this morning, which is, admittedly, I'll just say it at the outset, it is a different kind of message. So normally, when you come through these doors, the preaching you hear at UBC is what we call expositional preaching, where the preacher takes a passage of Scripture, and the point of the message is the point of that passage. So the primary point of the message, primary point of the passage applied then to the heart of the hearer. That's what we typically do. But on occasion, we do what we call topical sermons, where instead of taking a single passage, we actually take a topic, and we look at what the Bible in its totality says about that particular topic. And today, the Bible is that topic. All right, The Bible is that topic. For we've all read books. Right? We've all read books that shape us, you know, my love for history was in part sparked as a child by reading Esther Forbes' 1943 novel, Johnny Tremaine. Anyone read that? Yeah, my kids, a few others. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. It's about all the hands I saw. Well, I trust you've read books that have shaped you. But friend, have you read a book that has fundamentally transformed you? Have you read a book that has changed you? A book that every time you come back to it, every time you return to that book, it unlocks new treasures. A book that never grows old. A book that never grows dull. 
a book that speaks to every season of life and a book that speaks to every emotion of life, right? Whoever you are, right? Wherever you are, in whatever season you're in and whatever circumstances you are in, that book has something to say to you. Have you ever read a book like that? Because that's exactly what the Bible is. It's not, in fact, a book like any other book. It's not merely history or poetry or law or prophecy or biography, though it contains elements of all those genres. The Bible is a genre all to itself. And the amazing thing about the Bible, as we come to read it, we don't just read it, the Bible reads us. And it's Honestly, it's what I hated about the Bible the first time I read it as a teenager. Reading it as a teenager, as a skeptic, expecting to stand over the Bible and make judgments of it. I read it in part to review it. I read it with a mind to critique it. But I found over time that that Bible was reviewing me. That Bible was critiquing me. That Bible was making judgments Sadly, very honest judgments, judgments I couldn't reject, judgments about me. That's part of what unsettles us as we come to the Bible. But it's also part of what intrigues us as we come and we read the Bible. Because in the Bible, we'll find a mirror to our own souls. Now this morning, I just want to ask one simple question about the Bible. Is the Bible God's word. That's the simple question I want us to ask. Is the Bible, this Bible right here that many of you have in your hands, is it God's word? Because if it's not God's word, well, we might as well just walk out these doors. We might as well not be wasting and bothering our time with it. We needn't worry about it. We could silence it. We can mock it. We can escape it. We can ignore it if it is not God's word. But if it is God's word, or if the God of the universe has indeed spoken to us, if we have in the scriptures a true record of what God has said, well, friend, that changes everything about the Bible. That means it becomes a book like any, unlike any other book, right? A book that would command our complete attention and admiration, a book that demands our absolute devotion and dedication. So let's just start with that first and most basic question. Is the Bible God's word? Is the Bible God's word? Because some scoff at the idea, but I think many of us kind of just shrug our shoulders at the idea. So imagine we've been wanting to float the buffalo as a family this spring. It just keeps getting either too cold or it's too wet, one or the other. But imagine you're floating the buffalo and you're floating maybe with with a good friend of yours And you come around the bend, and as you come around the bend, you stumble across a figure who is himself stumbling through the brush, and that figure is wearing a spacesuit. And the two of you in your canoe look at one another, and you ponder out loud, you know, maybe, maybe it's a test pilot, right, from some supersonic rocket he had to eject, and like he found himself alongside the Buffalo River. Maybe your friend goes, well, you know, I think, I think it looks like a Russian cosmonaut. Maybe it's like Red Dawn 3. You think, well, no, maybe they're filming some sci-fi movie nearby. And your other friend laughs. He's like, no, I bet you there was a costume party. I bet you this guy had a little too much fun and got lost last night. But then the two of you just kind of shrug your shoulders and you go, oh, well, guess we'll never know. And you just float right on by Well, you have to admit, if you actually wanted to know who this figure was, what he's doing there, then you could stop guessing and you could actually pull the canoe over and ask him, hey, who are you? How'd you get here? Well, friend, it's like that with the Bible. So often, before we we really should start making assumptions about the Bible, we could just stop and ask the Bible, hey, what do you claim to be? What do you claim to be? You know, earlier in the service, we read Psalm 19. You can look there in your worship guide, Psalm 19, or you can turn there in your Bibles. So I just encourage you to worship God or your Bibles. Turn to Psalm 19. And notice how the psalm opens. 
The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. And the psalmist is, is going to go on, as we read earlier, and he's going to talk about how God has set a tent for the sun and for the rising and the setting. And, and all of this creation is proclaiming something. It's talking about God. And part of what we see and part of what we prayed even earlier in the service is how God speaks to the world through the world. So creation cries out there is a creator. The universe is his canvas in which he has painted the most masterful and beautiful painting. And that painting, creation, tells us a good bit about how marvelous and glorious and majestic our God is. But if we actually want to come to know the artist, if we want to know the artist personally, well, then we need to communicate with the artist. We don't just need the world, we need his word. And that's where the psalmist goes, right? Verse 7 flips from the world to the word. Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, Reviving the soul, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. He's just going to go on and on. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. You're seeing just piled up one upon another all these synonyms for God's word. The law, the testimony, the precepts, the commandments, the rules. And notice what the psalmist says. He doesn't say they're humanity's rules. He doesn't say they're society's precepts. No, it's the law, did you catch it, of the Lord. The testimony of the Lord. The precepts of the Lord. The commandments of the Lord, the rules of the Lord. The Bible is not claiming to be merely the musings of men, but the very words of God. In fact, in just the first five books of the Bible, we come across that expression, and God said 700 times. You know, some of us are so familiar with the Bible, we just read right over it. We don't stop to think, wait, God actually spoke. God actually used words. We're not confused and left in the dark. No, God has spoken. 700 times we read in the first five books. Over 4,000 times when you just look at the Old Testament in its entirety. Which is remarkable. Because the same voice from Genesis 1 that supernaturally spoke the world into existence. That same voice that right now supernaturally sustains all things, right? This pulpit, my voice, your ears, everything in the universe. Well, that same voice speaks to us supernaturally through his word. So that same power that fuels the sun is the same power that is at work when we read the word and hear the word, read and hear it preached. Friends, that ought to cause you to stop and to marvel at God's word, to receive it humbly, to even tremble at God's word, tremble with anticipation of what he might do through the word. Friend, notice that's exactly how Jesus treated the word, with that same kind of reverence. You know, so as we look at Jesus' life, when tempted, Jesus trusted in the word. So three times when tempted by the devil, Jesus quotes from the scriptures, right? It is written, and then quotes from the scripture. He trusted in it. When Jesus taught, he upheld it. So Matthew 5, 17, he says, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, which is just a shorthand way of speaking of the whole Old Testament. Don't think I've come to abolish them. No, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. When confronted, 
Jesus appealed to the word. So remember back in Mark 12 when the Sadducees tried to trip Jesus up on that question on the resurrection? What does Jesus do? Remember, he goes right at him and says, the reason you are wrong is that you don't know the scriptures. Right? He's appealing to them. Even as he's being killed upon the cross, he rests in the word, quoting from Psalm 22. Jesus affirmed the existence of Adam and Eve, of Cain and Abel, of Noah, of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, of yes, of Jonah, of Moses, and more. All of them referring, he refers to them, speaks to them as, as real people in real history and part of God's unfolding story. So to cut out pages of our Old Testament, to treat the stories as myth, to unhitch ourselves from sections of the Old Testament, recognize once you do that, what you are saying is you can see straighter than Jesus. You can see clearer than Jesus. You can see better than Jesus. That you are more wiser and more learned than Jesus. And the reality is Jesus never disregarded. He never disrespected. He never disparaged or disagreed with a single text of Scripture. If we claim to follow Jesus, we ought to read the Bible like Jesus, as an authoritative book. You know, even the rest of the New Testament writings, well, they proclaim and assume much of the same status as the Old Testament writings do. So, for example, in 2 Peter 3.16, 2 Peter 3.16, Peter is going to say of some of Paul's writings, he's going to say some will try to distort them. They'll try to distort Paul's writings, and then he'll say, as they do the other scriptures. So right there in that passing comment, Peter is equating Paul's writings with the Old Testament scriptures. Same authority, same level. Or in 1 Timothy 5.18, Paul will write there, for scripture says, and then he's going to quote both Deuteronomy and Luke. Again, revealing how the New Testament authors understood that the New Testament writings were on equal footing with the Old Testament writings. Now, at some point, if you're at all a skeptic, you may be thinking to yourself, this is all great, but saying the Bible is God's word because it claims to be God's word is just a hopelessly circular way to argue. So... Notice, though, that whenever we come to first principles, whenever we think about first principles, there's always a degree of circularity. So, for example, the person who says, you know, I like to think of things from a rational point of view. And you say, why? And they're like, it's rational. There's a bit of circularity. Or when you ask someone about science and they defend scientism, by touting the authority of science and pointing to science. Again, there's a degree of circularity there. You see, you can't establish your supreme authority by appealing to some lesser authority. So if we were to say as Christians, I know that the Bible is my final authority because I can prove it rationally, that's actually a self-defeating argument because you're appealing to another authority albeit a lesser authority, rationalism, to prove the more supreme authority. The clear testimony of Scripture, friend, is that it claims to be God's word. Part of what we get to do as we read it is see, is that claim, is it consistent? Is it real? Does it seem to be true? That's a lot of what we got to think about as we're going through the Gospels, the historicity, the truthfulness of those Gospels. What claims to be God's word. But the question then comes, okay, how does this book how does this book uniquely come to be God's word? Come to be God's word. How is that possible? Because no other book makes claims exactly like that. And yet we come to 2 Timothy 3.16. A verse many of you will be familiar with. 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture, Paul says, is breathed out by God. As the CSB says, inspired by God. Seeing it, that claim right there. Or 2 Peter 1.21, we read, No prophecy was ever produced 
by the will of man, but men spoke, Peter says, from God as they were carried along by the agency of the Holy Spirit. In other words, what we're seeing right there in 2 Timothy 3 and in in 2 Peter is that God speaks through human authors, but speaks through them providentially in such a way that those authors would write what God wanted them to write. What's referred to as a concursive view of inspiration. God didn't obliterate the will of the writers, nor did he turn them into like machines or marionettes, like just robots who just mindlessly, like dictation. We don't hold to that view. So when you read the Bible, you can see and feel the personalities of the authors coming through the words. Their style and personality is preserved, and yet they wrote exactly what God wanted. Because God is sovereign. And his sovereignty and man's responsibility are compatible truths as we understand in Scripture. Now, just as a total side note for those of you philosophers, if you believe in a libertarian notion of free will, there is actually no confidence you can have that this Bible is fully inspired. Now, if some of you want to go away and lunch and think about that some more, I invite you to do it. Right? So try to wrap your heads around that. Come back to me and talk more if you want. But the divine inspiration of Scripture, it's what we see clearly in Scripture. It's actually what we confess in the very first line of our church's statement of faith that we confessed earlier in the service. We believe that the Bible was written by men divinely inspired. And it's going to go on to say that it had God for its author. So simply put, what the Bible says, God says. Simple as that. What the Bible says, God says. And if that is true, then what I want us to do in the remainder of our time is think about six implications. Yes, I said six. Six implications for us. These are glorious implications that should forever change how we think about God's word. And those six implications are inerrancy, infallibility, authority, clarity, Necessity and sufficiency. Six. All right, those are going to be our six subpoints to point one. And I will just work through them one more time there. Inerrancy, infallibility, authority, clarity, necessity, and sufficiency. Now, in talking with John Henderson earlier this week, he's like, oh, it's the itties of the Bible. Yeah, but, you know, John, over time, that's probably not the best thing to title the sermons. We didn't title it that. Okay. But let's think about these six. Implications of what we've said thus far is true. First, inerrancy. Inerrancy, which just means that the scriptures in the original manuscripts do not err. They do not err. Now, we're all familiar with that expression, right? To err is human. We make mistakes. Sadly, all the time, we get things wrong. We are constantly having to correct ourselves But friends, the Bible is not just a human book. It's a divine book, a book inspired by God himself. So just as it is impossible for God to lie, Hebrews 6.18, so it naturally fits that every word of God proves true, Proverbs 35. Now inerrancy doesn't mean that all the copies of the original manuscripts are without error. So I would just test you to copy the book of Exodus every day, 10 hours a day, for six days, and see if you make no mistakes. Chances are you'll probably double copy a sentence. Maybe you'll leave out a word. Hopefully, it won't be as bad as the 1631 edition of the English Bible, which read, Thou shalt commit adultery. I think that guy docked a few days' pay for that one. (laughs) Missed the not. I shall not commit adultery. At any rate, inerrancy means original autographs don't err. And that conviction is actually grounded in the very character, in the very nature of God himself. So as the great theologian B.B. Warfield noted, if inspiration is true, 
if the scriptures are breathed out by God, then inerrancy is the necessary consequence. For God is not like man that he should lie, Numbers 23, 19. And friend, it's this actual commitment to inerrancy that has actually split nearly every major Protestant denomination in the last hundred years. So you think of the PCA, Presbyterian Church America, which had to leave the PCUSA because the PCA held to inerrancy and the PCUSA was drifting from it. Or you can think of the Missouri Synod Lutherans, which had to leave the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America over the same issue of inerrancy. Or you think of the Southern Baptist Convention, which had this big fight over inerrancy, if you will, in the convention, the late 70s into the 80s. It's what Al Mohler could have talked to us about last week, getting death threats for his position on inerrancy when he took over that institution in 1993. You think of even the Methodists today, that church undergoing in its own way a split over the issue of inerrancy. For to say some things in the Bible aren't true, once we start saying some things in the Bible aren't true, that implies either the Bible is not all from God, in which case now we are left hopelessly and helplessly trying to determine which parts are from God and which parts aren't from God. So if the Bible is not, if some things aren't in the Bible from God, if some things aren't true, then either the Bible is not all from God Or the other consequence is God is not dependable. God is not reliable. And friends, both of those will utterly destroy any confidence you can have in God's word. And it runs counter to the very character of God. Again, how Jesus and how the New Testament writers treat the word of God. So inerrancy, the Bible and its autographs does not err. But next, let's think about infallibility infallibility, which is closely related to inerrancy, and people often confuse them, sometimes use them interchangeably, but there is, I think, an important distinction. Inerrancy is the thing itself, right? The Bible is wholly true. Infallibility is the consequence of that, right? Because the Bible is true, therefore, infallibility means it never misleads us. It never deceives us. The Bible is reliable, The Bible is trustworthy. You can rest your soul. You can rest your life. You can rest your eternity on it. Now, infallibility doesn't mean the Bible claims to tell us everything there is to know about God and about this world exhaustively. It doesn't claim that. But it does tell us all that we need to know about God and this world truly and dependably. You know, Psalm 119 is the longest chapter of the Bible, longest poem in the Bible. And you might expect, you know, a poem, this is going to be about like rivers and lakes and sunrises and sunsets and family and marriage and love and war, kind of poetry like that. But it's not a poem in those ways. It is a poem about the Bible. And we read, as we read through Psalm 19, this language of panting and and longing and weeping Powerful language, evocative language, all about the word. Because the conviction of the psalmist in Psalm 119, the conviction of the psalmist is that the Bible is trustworthy. The Bible is dependable because it's come from God. Psalm 119, verse 86, all your commands are trustworthy. Psalm 119, verse 138, the statutes you have laid down are righteous. They are fully trustworthy. For the psalmist looks around and the psalmist knows. He knows that institutions, politicians, people, everything about them, well, those are not finally trustworthy. They're not reliable. Though our temptation is to lean upon them and to rest upon them and depend upon them, and yet time and time again they disappoint us. The psalmist is helping us see those things are but straw. They're they're Shifting sands, only in God's word do we have that rock in which we can truly stand, a dependable word. But notice infallibility means God's word, it's not only trustworthy, 
It means God's word is good. It's good. And friend, I think we especially need to hear that word today, that God's word is good, because there are an increasing number of folks who won't object about the fact that the Bible speaks truly to us. They'll just reject that it is actually good for us, that the Bible's good for us. So many look at the Bible, whether it's the teaching, it's teachings on gender, it's teachings on sexuality, and they will conclude that the Bible can't be good. The Bible is hopelessly lost and backward, a, just a byproduct of a foregone age, right? That's how they see the Bible. And you know what? Sometimes it is true. Sometimes the past does embarrass us. So I sometimes look back at pictures of me in the 1980s, and I wonder why in the world did I ever think parachute pants and acid-washed jeans and oversized pastel shirts? How did I ever think that was cool? How did I ever think like Z Cavaricis with like pleats in them? How did I think that was cool? Some of you will remember what I'm talking about. Some of you are the right age. You know, my yearbook looks like one fashion disaster after another. Some of you look back to your yearbooks and you think much the same thing. But of course, at the time, we all thought the same. We dressed the same. It didn't seem hopelessly out of touch to us at the time. And the truth is, 20 years from now, we'll look back at skinny jeans and flannel shirts and hard parts and you know, thick-rimmed glasses, and we're like, oh my word, why did I ever wear that? That's the reality of it. What seems self-evident right now, whether or not we're talking about dress, or even whether or not we're talking about behavior, what seems self-evident in San Francisco or Manhattan, recognize that wasn't self-evident 30 years ago. It's certainly not self-evident today to people living in Cairo or Delhi. So often we dismiss the Bible as being a product of its time and of its place, as if we're not a product of our time and our place. So you know, when we come to the Bible and feel some discomfort with its teachings, we have to ask, is that really because the Bible is a hopelessly outdated product of its time? Or is it because I'm a product of mine? You know, we sometimes come to hard things in Scripture, and we find ourselves rejecting those hard things. Again, whether or not, particularly these days, whether or not it's gender, whether or not it's sexuality. And we want to reject them. We might have this instinct to reject them because it expresses views contrary to our culture and many of our friends. We assume, therefore, the Bible's teaching can't be good, and we're told it can't be good. It's even being made illegal in some cases. But have you stopped and ever asked yourself, if there is a creator God, why should, that, why should we assume, if there is a creator God, why should we assume that that God would always agree with our own cultural mores? Why should we assume he'd always agree with them? If God always said what we hoped he would say, if God kept changing and kept conforming his opinions to our very rapidly changing opinions and our convictions, shouldn't we be rather suspicious of God? In that case, shouldn't we stop and be asking, really, who's actually standing in the place of God? Who's actually conforming to whom here? Many will say that the Bible hopelessly contradicts itself, but few will admit that they reject it because it actually contradicts them. You know, it's interesting when we come to the Bible and we look at the teachings of Jesus, what we often forget and what many misunderstand is that everyone in some way struggled and was offended by the teachings of Jesus. So the disciples were offended by Jesus and his words. 
The Jewish authorities were offended by Jesus and his words. The crowds, as we've seen, the study of Mark, offended by his words. The Roman authorities offended by his words. Jesus was an equal opportunity offender to all. Because his words transcend time. They are, in fact, good in every age. And our inability to see the goodness of his words, that's not the fault of the Bible. That is the fault of our sinful, fallen hearts. In the words of Spurgeon, God writes with a pen that never blots, speaks with a tongue that never slips, and acts with a hand that never fails. And in his word, we learn that he is dependable and we can trust him and that his words are always good all the time. Which brings us thirdly to authority. Thought about inerrancy, thought about infallibility, thirdly, authority. You could say authority is sort of the modern problem that we've had with the Bible. It's the modern's problem with the Bible. Whose word will finally rule? Whose word will have pride of place? My word, society's word, or God's word? And the fact that Jesus repeatedly referred to the scriptures in order to silence his opponents, even the devil himself, that should confirm for us the absolute and supreme authority of God's word. But of course, we struggle with that authority. We struggle to give that word, God's word, pride of place in our own hearts. We see that in the garden we see it in society. So Aldous Huxley, who's the famous author of you know, Brave New World, uh, published like 1933 or something. At any rate, he, he wrote later, he once remarked, you know, the philosophy of meaninglessness was just an instrument of liberation. The liberation we desired was a liberation from a certain system of morality. And we rejected the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. Right there, it's a conflict of authority. Silence the Bible's authority and see what he's saying. If we silence that, it's liberation in his words. We can now live as we please. Sorry, my iPad is not wanting to flip here. But part of what we see in texts like 2 Peter 1.19, if you go back and read 2 Peter 1, Peter's, he's reflecting on the glory of the transfiguration, how transcendent, how awe-inspiring it was to, to witness the Father speak from the heavens and confirm the identity of the Son. And yet Peter goes on right from that amazing moment, and he goes on to write in verse 19, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. So even right there, Peter says that the written scriptures possess an authority more fully confirmed than even his own eyewitness testimony. That's a remarkable statement about the authority of God's word. See, Peter's helping us see there that there is no more authoritative declaration than we find in the word of God. There's no firmer ground on which we can stand than the word of God. No final argument to be given other than the word of God. So once the Bible has spoken in the court of law, in the court of public opinion, when the Bible has spoken, all other witnesses sit down. They are silent. And because the written words are God's words, that means the authority lies within the written text. The authority lies within words and sentences and paragraphs and not merely our existential experience of it. Now this is what's so dangerous, what you see sometimes in evangelical circles where small groups get together and they read a passage and the first question is, oh, how did you experience that? How did you hear that? What did you think about that? Friends, that's the wrong first question to ask. I mean that to no offense if you've done that recently, but let me just encourage you not to do that. It's a fine question to ask later, but that's not the first question we should be asking 
No, instead, what we need to be thinking about is, is the fact that it doesn't first matter what moved us subjectively, internally, experientially. No, it matters first what the text is saying to us objectively, externally, universally, propositionally. That's what matters because it's this word that has authority. Our authority as Christians is never, yes, this is true because I wish it were true or because I hope it is true or because I think it's true. And our authority as Christians is not even because my parents said it was true or even because my church taught that it was true. Our authority is because the Bible reveals it to be true. It's what you see with the Berean Jews where Paul notes in Acts 17 that the Berean Jews, right, they were, they were more noble than the Jews in Thessalonica. Why is that, Acts 17, 11? Because the Berean Jews examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. It's why we confessed our own statement of faith, that the Bible is what? It is the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard. It is the measuring bar by which all human conduct, creeds, and opinions should be tried. That's not tradition, as in Catholicism. It's not reason, as in modernism. It's revelation. Revelation alone has the final authority. And my Christian friend, don't miss this. When so many take pot shots at the Bible, they mock it for its backward morality, If you are not absolutely confident in the authority of the scriptures, you will be a slave to whatever sounds right. So we thought about inerrancy, infallibility, authority. Now clarity. Let's think about clarity. As in God's word is clear. Now this is sometimes, for some of you who've read a little bit about this subject, this is sometimes in older books referred to as the perspicuity of scripture which leaves many of you scratching your heads. Perspicuity is just an old word that means clear. Kind of ironic that a word that means clear just creates lots of confusion. We're just call it the clarity of Scripture. So if authority is the modern problem, the clarity of Scripture, that's kind of the postmodern problem where so many reject not only a single meaning of a text, but that we have any hope at arriving at the clear meaning of that text. All that we are left to is our subjective interpretations. And yet that's not what the Bible says. We read earlier again, just go back to Psalm 19, verse 7. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Making wise the simple. It is clear. Verse 8. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes, as in shedding light, giving understanding. It's what the psalmist proclaims. Psalm 119, verse 105, your word, we know this one, a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. Verse 130 of Psalm 119, the unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Right, so the perspicuity or the clarity of scripture simply means that ordinary people like you and me using ordinary means can accurately understand what must be known and believed and observed to be faithful Christians. Simply what it means, ordinary people, like you and me using ordinary means, that we can accurately understand what must be known and believed and and observed in order to live as faithful Christians. So this is particularly what Roman Catholicism rejects. This is a lot of what the whole Protestant Reformation was about. Because there... Only the priest, only finally the pope, can rightly understand Scripture. It's why they outlawed Bibles in the common language. It's why they burned people like William Tyndale, who would translate from Latin the Bible into English. And yet Protestants have taught that anyone can pick up the Scriptures and understand sufficiently its life-giving and eternity-altering message. And friend, that's my own testimony. You know, I didn't grow up with any exposure to Christianity. 
I didn't have a Bible in my house, not, none that I knew of, none that we ever opened and discussed. I had no knowledge of it. And yet when I was given a Bible as a teenager and I read it, I could understand very clearly Jesus left no doubt that I was a sinner in need of a Savior. I didn't need a priest to tell me that. I didn't need a Sunday school teacher to tell me that. That was very clear in God's word. Friend, if you've come here this morning and you wouldn't identify as a Christian, I think the best thing you can do is pick up a Bible and begin reading. Start with the Gospels. Maybe start with the Gospel of Mark. If you don't have a Bible, grab one in the seat back before you. Take it with you. If English is not your first language, we have other language Bibles on the way out there at Connecting Point. You can grab one of those. Read it for yourself. It will be very clear that there is a God. And he's a great and glorious God. And he's made us in his image. But we've rebelled against him. We've rejected him. We have said, you know what? I know what you desire for us and for me, but that's really not what I desire. We want to go our own way. That's the very nature of sin. We reject God's word in favor of our own. And that deserves rightfully God's judgment because God is good. We are not. And it's why he also sent Jesus into the world to live the life that you and I would not live. Died on the cross as a substitute and sacrifice for sinners. So died in our place. The death we should have died, Jesus died. And yet, he rose from the grave, victorious over sin and death, proving he was victorious so that all of those who see their need can go to Jesus, can repent of their sin, can trust in him, and know that their sin, Jesus is born on the cross, and all of his perfect righteousness is now ours. We don't earn it. We don't work for it. We receive it as a free gift of faith. And that is the good news of the gospel. That is very clear as you read. I encourage you to embrace that, to delight in it, to read about it for yourself, and talk with us. But friends, just because the Bible is clear, that doesn't mean we don't need the help of others. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be thinking corporately about Scripture together like this. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be reading confessionally. Lots of Christians have come before us. Nor does it mean that everyone's interpretation about a text is equally valid, right? They're valid insofar as they align with the the clear, plain meaning of the text. Nor does it mean that everything will be simple. So Peter notes in 2 Peter 3.16 that some of Paul's teaching is hard to understand. Which if you've ever come across that verse, you're like, praise God, I'm not alone. Okay, Peter found some of Paul's stuff hard to understand. It is sometimes You know, my wife's first job was actually as a trainer, physical trainer at MGM Studios. And uh, she would be training, and sometimes she'd have that person come in, and they'd say, you know, I want to look like this, you know, some ripped person. But she could just tell you, they want to look like that. They don't really want to work for that. And so she would work with them, and they'd start to moan and complain when they had to sweat. Well, similarly, friend, the person who always wants the Bible to be easy is like the person who goes to the gym and simply never wants to sweat. If we're never challenged, if we're never stretched, we'll never be changed and we'll never grow. All right, fifthly, let's think about necessity of Scripture. It's necessity. Because the world, as we've seen in Psalm 19, tells us something about God But it's the word itself, the word of God that truly introduces us to God. Scripture is necessary if we're to know God, to understand God, to love God, and to live lives that genuinely please God. We need God's word for that. It's necessary. It's why Paul writes, 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is inspired and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly complete and equipped for every good work. Which means you won't be complete. You will not be prepared and equipped to live a life for God unless you give yourself to careful study to the word of God. You can't live a life pleasing to God and equipped for Christian service if you do not give yourself to the word of God. If that's never occurred to you, 
Just think about that for a moment. That may explain a lot of what's happening in your life right now. We see it in Jesus' own words, right? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Only in studying the word of God do we truly come to know the God of the word. Parents, this is why you should study the Bible with your children. It's why it's wise to have them memorize the scriptures when their minds are sponges, to have them take those scriptures in. Right? We read in Psalm 19, verse 11, by those scriptures we are warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Friend, it's why if you're a Christian, you should begin every day with the scriptures. And I don't mean that as a legalist. I mean that to help you. I mean that as your shepherd. You know, sometimes we start the day and we act like the Bible is the re least relevant thing for us. And I say that because I know the instinct. I know the instinct to go grab from my phone or to go read the news, to go read the op-ed on the Wall Street Journal. Like, I know that instinct. But in the grand scheme of things, you know what? Elon Musk's latest adventure, right? Sending a colony to Mars, like whatever the guy's doing, right? His latest adventure. Or the, the hog's latest trade. Or the royal family's latest gaffe. Friends, that's not finally important. The most important thing in your life, the most relevant thing in your life is the Bible. It is the Bible. It's the word that never grows old and never wears out. And that is the most relevant thing and important thing you need every day. You know, our hearts, think of your heart like an instrument. And if your instruments are all like the instrument in our house, they are always out of tune. Not that I can help with that at all. But I can just tell, like, yeah, that's out of tune. Well, our hearts are like that. They easily become out of tune. And so when we begin our days with God's word... We're tuning our hearts back to him. I love the, the words of the missionary, Hudson Taylor. He said, do not have your concert first and then tune your instrument. Begin the day with the word of God and prayer and get first of all into harmony with him. Friends, I think that is wise counsel. Lastly, sufficiency. Sufficiency. So if authority is the modern's problem, if clarity is the postmodern's problem, I want to suggest to you that efficiency, that the sufficiency rather, the sufficiency of Scripture, that may be your problem. It's the evangelical church's problem, by and large, I think, because it's so easy to say all the right things about the Bible. But when push comes to shove, we don't act like the Bible's enough. We don't act like it actually speaks to us that actually God has anything to say to us. We look for new words. We look for new revelation. We look for new experiences. We search for new concerts, anything to bring us closer to God other than opening this up, praying over it, and studying it. You know, even with our own denomination, that champions inerrancy, that fought over inerrancy, it's ironic that so many conversations I have in denominational life the conversation is not first, what does God's word say? The conversation is first, does it work? Does it work? The conversation among Christian counselors, sadly, too often, not what does God's word have to say, but what does the DSM-5 have to say, or what does the new fad and the latest fad in psychology have to say? We doubt the sufficiency of the word of God to do the work of God. You know, the Bible, yeah, that's fine and all. But then we end up thinking, you know, if I could just really experience God personally, if I could really experience him speaking to me, how amazing that would be. And we fail to see that he has. Right in his word, God has spoken to you and is speaking to you authoritatively, certainly, and personally. And you can hear from this God by opening up his word. Everything we need for life and godliness is not some scheme out there. It's right here in the scriptures. If we would only believe it and take it up and read it. But if we step back and just think of these six things, what we're seeing is the scriptures, they're final, they're authoritative, they're understandable, they're clear, 
They're critical as in they're necessary, and they are enough. They're sufficient for us. Which means counselors amongst us can counsel meaningfully because Scripture is sufficient. Bible study leaders can lead, and you can lead confidently because Scripture is clear. Preachers can preach with boldness because this text has authority beyond my words. And evangelists can evangelize with urgency because Scripture is necessary. Friend, the question remains, what are you going to do this morning with God's Word? What are you going to do this morning with God's Word? You know, in college I had this friend named Naveen. And my friend Naveen was always talking about his girlfriend up in New York City. Tell stories about her all the time that they spent together. And yet whenever there was a big event on campus, somehow his girlfriend was never there. Always an emergency, never showed up. Last minute crisis, which began to leave all of us wondering, like, hey, Naveen, does she really exist? You're just making this girl up. You don't really have a girlfriend, do you? Now, Naveen, at some point, we're saying, if we're going to believe you, you're going to have to introduce this girl to us. We're going to need to meet her in person. We're going to need to talk with her. We're going to need to see her with our own eyes. We've got to have a personal experience. Friend, it's actually like that to some degree with the word. If we're going to truly know God, he's not just some imaginary guy, some myth. If we're going to know him, we've got to experience him through his word. For lots of people know lots of things about the Bible, but as Jesus warns us in Matthew 7, that doesn't mean they're Christians. Sadly, there are many people, maybe even some of you, who can appreciate a well-prepared sermon. Maybe not this one, maybe a different one, but a well-prepared sermon. You can be moved by beautiful music. You can even delight in a provocative Christian book. But then you can walk away from all those things and not be changed. Judas heard every one of Christ's sermons. He was no doubt impressed by them, no doubt moved by them. That didn't mean he was saved by them and certainly didn't change as a result of them. One of the surest tests of a Christian's profession is how they respond to the scriptures. I'm going to say that again. One of the surest tests of a, of a Christian's profession is how they respond when confronted with the scriptures. We show ourselves to be in Christ's kingdom by how we respond to Christ's commands. Which is why we are exhorted in Psalm 34 to taste and see that the Lord is good. God's word is not just to be heard. It's not just to be studied abstractly. No, it's to be read. It's to be even more to be tasted. It's to be ingested. I don't know if you've ever caught this in Ezekiel 3. God speaking to Ezekiel in Ezekiel 3 verse 3. And God says to Ezekiel, he says, feed your belly with this scroll that I will give you and fill your stomach with it. That's an interesting idea. And Ezekiel says, Then I ate it, and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. I mean, what an image. Ezekiel there gnawing and chomping on a scroll. And yet how sweet, he says, that scroll was to his soul. That scroll that contained God's word to him. Right, we're meant to chew on that word, to digest that word, such that that word moves through us and that word becomes a part of us. The Bible was not simply given so that we know God propositionally, though we must. It was also given that we would know God personally. And the most effective means of bolstering our confidence in the Bible is simply to spend time in the Bible. Those who delight in the Bible most are those who know it best. I love what Spurgeon had to say. He said, a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who's not. 
At the end of the day, though, friend, you must taste and you must see for yourself. Will you? Will you? Let's pray. Oh God, we pray as a consequence of encountering your word this morning that we would receive it as it is, inerrant, infallible, authoritative, clear, necessary, all those wonderful things sufficient for us. Oh God, we pray that in the midst of all the things that can distract us, oh God, we pray that we would commit ourselves to studying, to knowing, to eating your word that we would ingest it, we would make it part of us, and you, through your spirit, would do its good work in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.